Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. So, hi, Hare Krishna. And so my, my spiritual teacher, when, I, when someone asks, uh, declares to them that, hey, that they don't believe in God, they say, hey, I don't believe in God. He always, uh, he tells me, he always asks them then, describe to me the God you don't believe in. And when I first heard him say that, I thought that's kind of odd because if God doesn't exist, how are you going to describe it? But it turns out when he does that, they give a description many times of the God that they don't believe in. Because really the, the question is not so much God per se, but they have trouble with certain conceptions of God that they've been given to believe. And so I thought that it might be interesting because for myself, the conception of God that we have in the Krishna Bhakti tradition is, is just so wonderful. It's, it's elegant, it's sophisticated, and it's, the, the conclusion is so joyful that it makes me feel glad to be alive. It's elegant because it, it's, it's surprisingly simple, sophisticated because it, it seems to cover all the bases. And then the conclusion is just so wonderful, it's joyful. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about that and then highlight that by looking at some of the other common conceptions. If we were gonna do this you know, in detail, it would take days, but we can, we can cover briefly some other very common conceptions. And by looking at that, you can kind of, and it can kind of brings out in sharp relief uh, the, the beauty of the Krishna Bhakti conception. Okay. So we'll start with the plural, <laughs> gods. Because in, in the history of recorded history, and even today, there are many people that understand that, that the forces of nature are controlled by beings greater than us. Rain gods, wind gods, sea gods, sun gods, moon gods, and on and on and on. And for, for many, that's as high as it gets. There's us and then there's these higher beings. So that's their conception of divinity. And Krishna talks about this. Actually, it's accepted in our tradition that there are such beings. And Krishna mentions it in Bhagavad Gita. He calls, he calls them the devatas, the demigods, Prabhupada translates. He says, the demigods, being pleased by sacrifices, this is from the third chapter, will also please you, and thus, by cooperation between men and demigods, prosperity will reign for all. So he mentions them, Krishna does, and he goes on, he says, in charge of the various necessities of life, the demigods, being satisfied by the performance of yagya, sacrifice, will supply all necessities to you. But he who enjoys such gifts without offering them to the demigods in return 
is certainly a thief. So there's some, there's some positive things that come from, from this conception. And the first of all, there's acknowledgement that there's something higher in the, in the world than us. And that's a good thing if we uh, take note of the behavior of human beings. Uh, it's common these days to think that nature is just something that, that needs to be shaped and molded and perfected. Although I think ecological disasters have tempered that somewhat. We thought that we, as there are engineering and other type of, of uh, abilities, can reshape the earth and make it better. I think we've at least understood these days that there are complicated interrelationships there, so it's a little bit more difficult. And those who see that, that, that these forces of nature are controlled and there's a system in place tend to have a little more regard for the system. They tend to be a little more kind to the earth and more appreciative and, and grateful. The more powerful that we think we are and more significant we think we are than the more we feel justified in doing very <laughs> terrible things sometimes. So there's a certain understanding of hierarchy is present in that situation and gratitude, right? that we're receiving things. It's not just that we're there, the earth is there, and it's ours to do anything we want with. So you see that people who have these kind of understandings, they oftentimes will be more in tune with nature. They will be a little more controlled in their behavior. And then, of course, it offers, it offers some potential benefits. Right, that we, we now, in the world, we're very small creatures, even though we may think we're the highest. Right, compared to the forces of nature, we're very tiny. Hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and you know, forest fires, these things can cause us a lot of difficulties. And we can't control them. Sea level rises, <laughs> very difficult to, to fight these things. So in drought, you know. So so many of these cosmic forces uh, cause us, you know, trouble. We either want, either you know, causes us direct difficulties or causes us difficulty in having in obtaining what we need. And so if if there are higher powers that can be accessed and satisfied, right, then it may be possible to to ha have some relief from these things. So that's what people usually think. Uh, we realize is that, that, that the cosmic forces, the great forces of nature are beyond our control. So having somebody be in control mm, can be a benefit. Mm. But then Krishna goes on to say, this is in the seventh chapter of Bhagavad Gita, he says, this is text 20, those whose intelligence has been stolen by material desires, Surrender unto the demigods and follow the particular rules and regulations of worship according to their own natures. There's a series of verses here where he says, I am in everyone's heart as the super soul. As soon as one desires to worship some demigod, I make his faith steady so that he can devote himself to that particular deity. And endowed with such a faith, his endeavors to worship a particular demigod he endeavors to worship a particular demigod and obtains his desires. But in actuality, these benefits are bestowed by me alone. 
He's indicating there's a power behind the power. And he says, men of small intelligence worship the demigods, and their fruits are limited and temporary. Those who worship the demigods go to the planets of the demigods, but my devotees ultimately reach my supreme planet. So Krishna indicates that that might not be the ultimate description of divinity. And there's, so there's, a, there's a few things about that that leaves some, like I said, something that is uh, very sophisticated doesn't leave many loose ends. You can explain almost everything. So there's some loose ends here and some questions that are left unanswered. And uh, the two words that Krishna uses later on in the Bhagavad Gita is apratishtam, without a foundation. So if, if we just have a hierarchy of beings, Everybody has a certain amount of control over their environment. We have a certain amount. Even little ants have control over their anthill. Right? And then you have devatas, the demigods, who have control over cosmic forces. If there's just a hierarchy of different controllers, then where does it all come from? And we just presume that here it is. I'm here, it's here, now let's... You know, it's up to us then to try to have as much happiness and enjoyment in this life as possible. And it's just open to us. That's all there is. Somehow it arrived. Somehow it's here. We don't know why. Hmm? And then anishvaram, without, without an ishvara, without a controller. There's many little controllers and some bigger ones. But there's not an overarching control or plan. And when you see something as sophisticated as our universe, and if you imagine also that there's a, like a hierarchy where you have even entities who control cosmic forces, it makes you wonder. <laughs> Is there something even greater than that? Is there something even behind that? So these things aren't explained very much. What's the, what's the, you know, what's the why, why is it here? What's the source? What's the purpose? Things aren't really answered very well. So then we can move on to God singular. And uh, general conceptions of that, we have a, a single God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, the creator, the controller, the lawgiver, and usually someone who rewards and punishes. That's a pretty common conception. Right. Omnipotent, omniscient. So we have, we have there, you know, the, the uh, pratishtam is there. Where's the source? God. Right. There's a, a, an ishvaram, a single controller that's there. And there's certain, you know, usually God gives certain pronouncements. You do this, you don't do that. And oftentimes there's considered to be consequences. So you have like, the, like these, the, the king of kings right, ruling over things. And so there's some advantages over the previous conception of gods because you have, you have, a, you have a source, you have a, there's a, a notion of purpose, perhaps. There's at least the opportunity for a purpose. And there's a source. So in the Isha Upanishad, in the first mantra, 
it kind of gives this kind of impression. It says, everything animate or inanimate that is within the universe is controlled and owned by the Lord. One should therefore accept only those things necessary for himself, which are set aside as his quota, and one should not accept other things, knowing well to whom they belong. So we have, we have a foundation and a controller now, a pratishta and an ishvara. And so that gives us, if, there, if, there's a, you know, if it's created by someone, controlled by someone, it opens the door to there, there could be a reason for it and a purpose for it. And the, the previous verse indicates that we have a place in that creation, right? your quota. That somehow everyone has a place in that creation and the implication is that we should cooperate with that. Right? That we have a place and we should remain in our place. And it mentions later on that if we do, there's benefits, and if we don't, that there tends to be repercussions. And that's, many, many people think of God in that way. A similar way to that. The Yishu Upanishad goes on and gives a more sophisticated view later on, but it was a, it was a good way to, to introduce that idea. And so, What's, what's left? Well, it immediately brings upon the problem of evil or suffering. If you have an all-powerful being, and many people, you know, all of us, and sometimes we'll encounter this to some degree, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much misery in the world. There's evil in the world. Hasn't everyone thought at some point that if you were God, you could do a better job? <laughs> some things you would fix if you had the opportunity? If you had all power and all knowledge? So a few things you would straighten up here. Things are not quite in order. Hmm? This problem of evil and suffering and, and, and trouble you know, it's caused people to theorize you know, either that, that God is not a good guy, enjoys to watch our suffering, or that he's not all-powerful. There was a famous, a famous book, right, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And that was the conclusion. God means well, but he's working on it. The universe has got to debug the software. <laughs> it's complicated out here, how to make everything work beautifully. And so he's tinkering with it. He's working on it. Just have patience. Maybe in your next life it'll be better. Yeah. Or the other idea is that, hey, you know, he's just not very nice. Sometimes children will be cruel to insects and other <laughs> small creatures. Right? Maybe he wants to, he's just toying with us. It's just an experiment, an amusement. We're not of any real significance. And so he wants to see what we'll do. If, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? It's some, some just, yeah, we're some small amusement for him. And then what about the, the rules with the 
reward and punishment. And that God's going to be mad at you if you do this. And if you do this, you, he'll reward you. Is he a petty tyrant? People will think like that. That he needs worship. Insecure people, right? They want people to notice them and respect them and to serve them and do things for them. So is God like that? I create you and you serve me. You adore me. Otherwise, then you're going to suffer. So is God needy? Small, weak in that way? You know, he's all-powerful and all-knowing, but is <laughs> insecure and needy and vengeful. What? You're not going to listen to what I say? Finish. So this causes people to have doubts many times. Do we want, you know, actually, Srila uh, Prabhupada's guru, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, he calls God, he says, the transcendental autocrat. And in kind of, it's actually a very apt term, but in the way we use autocrat today, the connotations are pretty negative. <laughs> and that's usually, we think, somebody who's just, you know, I've created everything just so I can rule over it and be, you know, terrorize people if need be and force them to, to act in certain ways. It's not, a, it's, it's not very inspiring in some, in some sense. He's greater than you and you're of no value unless you do what he says. So that has led people to think maybe there's something beyond God. I put the question mark there, something beyond God. That these conceptions seem um, well, unpalatable. You know, why, can't, why can't God just be nice and if, if he creates us, make us all happy, be a nice guy, be our friend? Hmm? So they have a notion that, uh, and generally the notion is that if something exists, it's on a lower level than, than the source of all existence. They say that, that, that they, there must be something absolute, something that's the source of all existence. So any existent thing is, natu is naturally on a lower level. Right? If I have I have something that can make anything, create anything, do anything. And any one creation that comes out is only a fraction of its power. It's on a lower level. So it, and therefore you can't, ideas fail to describe it because all ideas are attached to specific things. So words, you don't have the right word for it because you've never experienced such a thing. The mind boggles at it because it's infinite. And sometimes they call it the great nothing. 
capital N because it doesn't have qualities, it doesn't have, it doesn't have anything. It's just the, 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 the potential source of anything and everything. So that gets you out of the, the tyrannical idea. It gets you out of the, of, uh, of the problem of evil in some sense because it's just, uh, doesn't say that it's all good, doesn't say that it's all anything, it just says it's complete. So it frees people from the notion of, of tyranny and being subordinate. As usually the idea is that somehow you can be reunited with that infinite thing. This is the philosophy of Shankaracharya. It says there's only existing one thing. There's not a second thing. And it's the, you know, it's complete, it's infinite. And in fact, strictly in his philosophy, you have to say that existence is an illusion. Because if there's a creation, that creation is a second thing, and it's imperfect. And so our business is to realize that it's an illusion, then we cease to exist. Other less strict persons in this, in this, along this type of line will say that we are little pieces of this infinite thing and they, we return into it. And so, therefore, at the end, we're merged with the Supreme. So we're not subordinate. The, the Supreme just sits there. It doesn't have any regard for anybody, no hostile intent, no pride, no nothing. It's just, it's just there. There's no, no supreme tyrant there controlling everything. If it is, if there is a God, it's part of this lower realm. So beyond, they said beyond. There may, so we, we may find devatas, we may even find one all-powerful entity. But that's just part of the illusion. And when we get out of it, we go back and merge into and to God. Uh, the real question there with that, well, there's a, many problems, but one really salient one is why would there be a world at all? You kind of come back a little bit to the pro a little bit to the problem of evil, although you can't really blame anybody. If you have something that's complete and perfect and infinite, why would it emanate anything? just to have them come back in. It's almost as if, the way I look at it, like you're happy, but only if you cause yourself some pain and relieve, and relieve it. But if you're whole and infinite, and it's supposed to be joyful, that, that infinite thing is supposed to be joyful, then why not just be satisfied? Why emanate something that's less complete, that suffers, and then the suffering is removed when they go back into the, into the infinite thing? What's gained by that? What's the purpose of that? Right? It's just like it has to, you know, there's some relief when you go back in. So there, you have to hurt yourself a little bit and then let the, let the pain go away. Why? 
Why not just be perfect and stay there? So now we'll move to Krishna. <laughs> so I think we'll reconcile different things and show an interesting view. So in, in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, I am the basis of the impersonal Brahman, which is immortal, imperishable, and eternal, and is the constitutional position of ultimate happiness. So he's contradicting that notion that the source of all existence can't exist. <laughs> it has to be beyond existence. He's saying, I'm the basis of that. I'm actually behind that thing from which everything arises. And he says, O conqueror of wealth, there is no truth superior to me. Everything rests upon me as pearls are strung on a thread. Also, Srila Prabhupada's teacher, Srila Bhaktisanta Saraswati, he gave an interesting way of looking at spiritual things. He said, here, here Krishna is saying that the Brahman comes from him. So it's a, it's a diffuse Krishna. <laughs> and, but Bhaktisanta Saraswati, he reverses it and says that, that, that Krishna, his form is concentrated Brahman. That's how he looks at it. One is concentrated and one is diffuse. And that Krishna, even though he is a being, he's a different kind of being. He's the being from which everything else emanates. So this is what he says. I'm the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Everything emanates from me. The wise who perfectly know this engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. Prabhupada uses the example. He says that, that if something is infinite and absolute, then why can't it have activities and form and everything else? Why can't it? That's a limitation. See, otherwise they say form is a limitation. It's one type of being. Right? And therefore, the, the infinite, that the infinite nothing is higher. But then you're saying it can't have form, it can't do anything. It just can sit there. That's a limitation. You can't have Krishna playing on his flute. He can't do anything. Well, we can play flutes, we can play instruments, but God can't do it. The absolute can't do music. Only indirectly. So it says, if you take that Brahman, the source of everything, and people have this you know, mystical experience you know, where they enter into the divine light. You know, they feel that. They say, if you concentrate that, you get spiritual form. So just like it said that Krishna says that that's the source of all joy, you concentrate that joy and happiness. So there can be a being who's the source of all being. And then what about the, uh, and of course, he, what about the, 
again, we're going to come up to uh, what kind of a guy is he? We're back to now having an autocrat who, as, as being a human or being a person, right, and has control and has made things with a certain purpose. What kind of a person are they? We, that's what we worried about before. That's why people sometimes move towards beyond God, because God seems to be sometimes not very nice. The world around us doesn't look very nice. So if it's his world, why is it like that? Here he says, this is a person in full consciousness of me, knowing me to be the ultimate beneficiary of all sacrifices and austerities, the supreme lord of all planets and demigods, and the benefactor and well-wisher of all living entities. That's the one I want to, the benefactor and what suridam, he said, sarvabhutanam. He's the suited, the well-wishing friend of everybody. So he's revealing his attitude here. So that's what I am. We're not amusement for him. We have value to him. He's the benefactor and well-wisher, the well-wishing friend of everybody. And attains peace from the pangs of material miseries. And he goes further is not just that God rewards people when they're good, when they worship him, much less to condemn them forever. But it's more than that. He's not just kind. There's this beautiful verse in the Srimad Bhagavatam where he says, the pure devotee is always within the core of my heart and I am always in the heart of my pure devotee. My devotees do not know anything else but me, and I do not know anyone else but them. So this gives the possibility of something very profound and joyful. This is what makes me happy to be alive when I hear something like this that this unique entity, the source of everything, the controller of everything, one for whom no one is equal to or greater, cares for everyone, even more than that, has us within the core of his heart. This is love. Everybody is looking for love. Here Krishna says, we've got it. And I'm going to argue to you that that's the purpose of existence. And if you take it in that context, you can begin to understand many other things. Why the world? Because we still have, in some sense, the imperfections that we see in the world. Why then aren't we simply with Krishna? And he's loving us and we're loving him if love is the point of everything. And Srila Prabhupada says that, he points out that love, genuine love, is something that cannot be coerced it's something that must be given freely from the heart. 
So God could create automatons, right, where human beings are working on androids and things, right? That they could, one day they may be able to imitate human beings enough. You could, and what if you had an android that would, you know, do all the things that indicate love? Well, it might be nice for a while. But you would know that it's just a machine. And that you programmed it to act in that way. Or what if you could have mind control over somebody? Right? There are some yogis that can control people's minds. You know? Or I pay you to act like you love me. Again, it might be nice for a little while, but we'll know that it's not genuine. So Krishna allows us the freedom to say, no, I want to go on my own. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to be part of your situation. That's what this world is about. Krishna has his place. That's what this world is about. What about the, the evil and the suffering and all the different types of things there? Hmm? Hmm? Why? Well, that's us. We're acting under the laws of karma. And Krishna gives us this space and there's a law of fairness that's happening here. There's, you see, there's so many of us in one world. We tend to try to satisfy ourselves at others' expense. We have a tendency to do that. That means it's not a fair situation. So karma reverses that. From whomever you've taken, you will give. And whoever you've injured will injure you. It's fair. Prabhupada uses the example, he says, the rain falls on the ground, and it's not the rain's fault whether weeds or crops grow there. So we're given a situation, we're given a space to try to enjoy ourselves, to try to have a life. And it depends. Do we want to grow crops or do we want to grow weeds? It's up to us. So the evil that comes in the world comes from us. And the suffering that comes to us comes from us. <laughs> it's simply fair. We want Krishna to be at a distance. We want to go it on our own. And so it's, a, it's more or less a mechanical system. If you want to touch a flame, it's going to burn. If you don't touch it, you don't get burnt. Krishna's not playing favorites there. System of fairness.
And we have a choice. We can continue like this. Or we have, an, we have another choice. Krishna is ready for us. So still I guess the question can remain. So why doesn't Krishna just set us up? Make us, you know, give, we want to be here separately. We don't want to deal with him. Why doesn't he just hook us up with great lives, everybody? All right, if he's really kind, just hook us up. Give us everything we want. Make it just great for us. All right, that would be really friendly, wouldn't it? He's really the well-wishing friend of everybody. Why do with this? You know, he can make enough for everybody. We don't have to have shared resources. We don't have to have this karma thing. We don't have to play fair. He can just give everybody unlimited amount of happiness. Make a world where we can all just be happy. Why not? Hmm? Sound like a good deal? Ready to go for it? <laughs> Who wants to take that deal? <laughs> right? But a well-wisher, a well-wisher, somebody who loves you, they want your best interest. They want what's best for you. And so there's a hidden motive. Krishna is a little bit tricky. He's known to be a little tricky. That this world is meant for us to be able to to do our own thing. But it's also meant to wake us up. That's why there's death. That's why there's difficulties. That's why there's problems. Prabhupada says that the, the perplexities in life are meant to awaken in us the idea that maybe there's something better. It's supposed to startle us. Because there can't be anything as good as being loved by Krishna and loving Krishna. He doesn't want us to be stuck here forever, even if it seems to be enjoyable. Because in comparison, even the greatest happiness is misery. See, we're right now, we're confused because we think that happiness comes from the outside in. And we don't have enough of it. And that we need to get more. And so we think getting more and more and more would be as good a thing as we could possibly get. Krishna has discovered something better. And remember, he's omniscient and all-powerful. So if you look at Krishna, why is he not just enjoying as much as he can? Just consuming and getting happiness from the outside. Because he's discovered something more beautiful, more powerful, more happy. 
And it says in the, in the Srimad Bhagavatam that, that Krishna operates and all, all of his activities operate on the level of full satisfaction, Atmarama. There's no emptiness, there's no neediness. He's, he's a kanditam, kandita, he's complete. He's Atmarama. Complete, he's full, he's, he's completely satisfied. So that allows him not to take, but to give. And so we see time and time and time again how Krishna is not here just to take from his devotees, he's there to give. He drives the, the chariot for Arjuna. So many examples for Krishna. He's giving, he's, he, tells, he tells the gopis he can't repay them for their love. He feels like that. So giving and loving is more powerful and wonderful than even being able to take an infinite amount of things. And when there's two that I have a feeling the same way, right? the devotees, they be, because so they're, Krishna says they're mama vangsho jiva loke, they're tiny portions of himself. Also, we are by nature full and Atmarama, Akandita and Atmarama. And we are meant to be able to give and to overflow, not to take. So the highest possible thing is not to be able to take as much as possible, but to be full and give as much as possible. Krishna is known as the all-attractive. So he stimulates love. Sometimes you see some little, you know, whatever it may be, some little small child or something, oh, you just feel... You want to do something for them. Right? So it's like that. If we come into contact with Krishna, and Krishna, says, Prabhupada uses this example, he says, like a small child sometimes will make a drawing for their parents. And it's objectively not of very high artistic quality by anyone's estimation. But they treasure it they put it on their refrigerator. <laughs> and they think, oh, my wonderful child. So we can't do anything for someone who's complete and full. Not really. But Krishna appreciates the attempt and feels indebted just like the parents. So this is the meaning of reality. And I don't know, I haven't been able to come up with anything that could be more wonderful. So it makes me happy to be alive. So anyway, I've run over a little bit, so let's stop here. And there's comments, questions, complaints, corrections, additions, subtractions, any such things. Speak them now. Uh-oh, Gopi is scary. <laughs> there are certain persons who you don't want to see that the hand go up because it's going to be difficult. And Gopi is one of them. Hari Kirtan, I don't think, is here today, so I'm a little, <laughs> have some hope. Hi, Krishna. Thank you, Prabhu. Um, just the title of your talk, um, The God I Don't Believe In, it seems to underline, I think, in all of us, I'm, well, I, I'm, well, for myself anyway, there is always a level of um, exploration, even on our own practice of our relationship and journey in our life with Krishna, with who God is, and that that sometimes the God I don't believe in 
does bring up doubt. Like there is levels of on our journey where you're confronted with a lot, just doubt, just like a darkness and a doubt. And although there's a philosophy and a teaching that you might be riding that path on, then you hit the, the, the obstacle of doubt. And I, I was wondering if you could just um, talk a little bit about how to perhaps overcome doubt more from a heart space than a place of just philosophy. Because I find myself sometimes, okay, I could give myself an answer for a doubt, but that's like a philosophical answer. But sometimes it's, it's the God I don't believe in is that, that doubt that perhaps I don't understand that philosophy. Hmm. Well, that's, you know, that's more related to what we usually call, you know, we call faith, you know? We have that, it's, there's, I mean, there's the, there's the word, you know, that we use, shraddha, you know? And we, it's usually translated as faith. And faith has some really negative connotations in, to, in today's world, that we swallow something even though we don't believe it, that we have to accept it even if we have doubt. And in our tradition, faith is something that grows. And it, it coexists with doubt. There's a certain, there's a, you know, at first there may be this much doubt and this much faith. Right? Srila Prabhupada used to say, if somebody came and just investigated bhakti, they could have done something. There's a little tiny shred of doubt. They're thinking it may, or may, a shred of faith. There may be something useful here. And when we do it, and something positive happens, then that increases. And now, when something negative happens to us, then we may wonder, you know, where is Krishna? He's supposed to be my friend. What happened? And then we have that crisis like that. You know, then the God I believe in becomes the God I might not. You know? But then we have to weigh that against all the, all the things that have given us faith. Right? So, so there becomes the, the balance can shift a little bit. Right? It seems like, oh, I had so much faith. Now oh, it's a little bit more doubt is creeping up. And then we have to, we can reflect on the things that have given us faith. We can pray on it. That's a good way to deal with it from the heart. And we can, oftentimes what happens in retrospect is we overcome it. We get deeper insight. We get deeper confidence. So we're not supposed to just swallow everything and accept it without question. That's not a healthy kind of faith. Healthy faith has doubt. And we try to deal with it when we have it. We can talk to other people. We can pray. We can reflect upon the things that give us faith. You know, and have some patience. If we, if we have enough, we've experienced enough to give us a certain amount of faith, we can also have some patience. I have that doubt, and I can live with it. And I can try to work with it. And then when that, if that's successful, our faith is much stronger. So we shouldn't be afraid of doubt. Even at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, tells Arjuna, do you have any doubts? He doesn't say, I'm God. I know everything. I just told you. Do it. He says, do you have any doubts? So faith and doubt, they're connected. 
זה אלוקי.